This podcast is a quest for well-being, a quest for a meaningful life through the exploration of fundamental truths, enlightening ideas, insights on physical, mental, and spiritual health. The inspiration is love. The aspiration is to awaken new ways of thinking that can lead us to a new way of being, being well. Welcome to Body, Mind, and Soul Healing Conversations. you knew how to be the right kind of friend when the worst things happen in their life? Do you feel clueless as to what to say when a friend loses a spouse or a child unexpectedly? Do you find it easier to step away from a friend's pain because you're fearful of adding to it? Then this episode is for you. Feeling ill-equipped to be a natural nurturer is a nearly universal phenomenon. Valeria Tellis interviews Lynn Hooksema on cultivating compassion and becoming an effective comforter. She provides insights into the emotions of the grieving world, practical now and later suggestions, what to say and do, what not to say and do, and the whys behind it, God's call to be compassionate, and how He can equip you. So whether your friend has lost a spouse a child, a job, their health, or their status quo, cultivating compassion is a must. Lynn began her Be a Blessing to Your Grieving Friend ministry a few months after the death of Dale, her husband of 31 years, in October 2017. Her goal for the ministry is to teach others how to navigate the sometimes tricky waters of walking along someone who is grieving. She also looks at what the Bible says about compassion and how God can equip us. Because this walk can often be uncomfortable, her behind-the-scenes perspective and practical knowledge will provide the confidence necessary to step out in faith and bless someone in their time of need. In her book, Cultivating Compassion, Practical Advice as You Walk a Friend Through a Season of Loss, Lynn provides the tools you'll need in your compassion arsenal to be the kind of friend we all long to be. Here is the interview with Lynn Hooksema. In your own words, who is Lynn Hooksema? Well, Lynn has changed through the years uh, because of life's experiences, of course. Um, But at the heart of who I am, I am a Christian. I'm a believer in Jesus. And now that I'm a widow, that informs everything about my journey. Um, But in the past, I grew up in a small town with a great family. I had a wonderful career for 20-some years. I married a wonderful man that I was with for over 35 years. So I've had a very, very blessed life through most of my life and still do. Um, But being a widow um, 
it really changes your view of everything. But because I'm a Christian, that also informs how I look at everything. So this is a new season. And so this part of my life is my ministry um, to help people know how to walk alongside someone that's hurting. So that's who I have become now. How wonderful. Thank you, Lynn. I have a few warm-up questions before we talk about your book, Cultivating Compassion, Practical Advice as You Walk a Friend Through a Season of Loss. So my first question is, what is another word for life? Oh, journey, I would say, because boy, the longer you live, the more you look back and see that your life has been a journey of um, a lot of ups and downs. It's a lot of seasons. And I think as you look back, you know, if you're not 20 years old anymore, you can look back and you see that life is a journey and it's not, let's get to this one destination, but it's what do you learn along the way? Who do you help along the way? And what good can you do along the way? Would you say that that's the purpose of life? Well, I think everybody's going to have their own purpose, depending on you know their worldview and what their beliefs are. For me now, my purpose, and really should always be, but probably more so now, um, is to to really see where God leads me through this ministry, because I spent twenty some years in the corporate world. I have a a finance and a math background. And so I was in the corporate finance world for a lot of years. And uh, and now I'm a writer and a speaker, and it's things that I've never really done before. So I look for God to open the doors that I should walk through. And being a planner, that just goes against everything that I've been in the past. And now I have to look to see where does he open the doors. And that's where I go to see where he opens things for me to speak into. Wow, I love that. Where is God? Well, for me, God's spirit lives within me because I'm a believer, but because he is the creator of the universe, he is he's everywhere. I mean, he is omnipresent. Um, but because of you know the personal relationship he wants to have with us, his spirit lives within us. And that's a lot of what guides me as I go through this really difficult season in my life. What is the meaning of freedom to you, Lynn? Oh, boy. I think for me now, it's learning to let go of being kind of a control freak, <laughs> you know? <laughs> I don't think there's very few that don't struggle a little bit with that. And so that's part of what I've learned through this season, too, because as I mentioned, I am very much a planner. I've been called a FEMA director before. Um, I mean, and some of that is good, but I think as in all things, you can sometimes carry things to an extreme and then they become not so good. And the control factor is that. So for me, learning to let go of trying to run my own life and know that it's in the hands of somebody that is so much bigger and powerful than me, that gives me some freedom. Oh, wow. That sounds great. What is your greatest joy? Oh, boy, that has changed with the seasons, too. Of course, you know, younger, the joy was my career. The joy became my husband, it's friends. I think right now my greatest joy is what I look forward to because I know God is working through this ministry and I know ultimately where I will be at the end. And so um, 
This is a life that is full of sorrow and joy. And I talk a lot with people about how both can coexist in a life because when you are a widow, it is sorrowful. And that's part of what I'm honest about when I talk with people or when I write is that this is a hard season and losing the man you love is devastating. But there is joy through it. And I think you have to look for the blessings because they're always there. There are things that show up in your life when you least expect it that bless you. And that's where you find your joy. What do you think is the world's greatest need? Jesus. <laughs> you know, as a believer, that that's where I'm at because, you know, that's where salvation is. That's where eternity in heaven with God is. So ultimately, you know, there's a lot of steps that people get to that. But ultimately, that's what I would see the world needs mostly right now. Do you connect uh, Jesus and God to the idea of love? And if you do, what is love? Well, they truly are love. And, you know, we learned in Sunday school years ago that God is love. I mean, he's so much more than that, but he epitomizes that. And the Bible talks about how, the, you know, faith, hope, and love the, of these, the greatest of these is love. And that's what exists at the end. So God is love. And, you know, as followers, we are trying to emulate that and we're trying to, to love those around us and love ourselves through all of that too. You answered the question, what is love, right? It goes back to Jesus and God and the ideal. Yeah. I mean, there's certainly action to it. It isn't just ethereal out there. Um, what we do, our actions speak to what we believe and what, who we love and how we love. So that's how you see it is in how we react with other people. So true. So what was the inspiration to start the ministry? Be a blessing to your grieving friend. Yes, I can tell you it's not what I wanted to do with my life. <laughs> um, <laughs> right. I tell people all the time, you know, I because I was 20 years younger than Dale, I have known that I'll probably be a younger widow. And I say, I thought about that for years and I wondered what God would have for me someday when I was alone. And I thought it might be related to one or two of my passions, maybe music and maybe dogs and maybe singing dogs, but it wasn't that. <laughs> That's cute. Uh, but what happened is is that um, after Dale passed away, I was working from home um, in the insurance industry and I had some friends that said, you know, maybe you should think about journaling through this season that you're in. And before long, that whole idea turned into a blog post. And so I started writing, oh, just a few months after Dale's death about what I was experiencing and some of the joys and the sorrows, mostly the sorrows and the heartache I was going through. And... Um, the thing, one of the things that was the hardest for me is the reactions that I got from a lot of my friends. They did not know what to do with me. And in some cases, they disappeared from my life. Um, they said things that were unintentionally hurtful. And so one of the first blog posts I put out there thinking that I was going to fix this problem for the whole world was what your grieving friend wants you to know. And so it was a lot of practical things and it didn't fix the world. <laughs> of course. <laughs> and so um, I was having coffee with my pastor and he said, Lynn, I think that you have a ministry here. And I said, you know, I think you are right. I'm feeling that too, because I had been on that side of things as well. I have not always known what to do or say with somebody going through a loss. But now I've lost both of my parents. I've lost my husband. 
I now know how to comfort someone without, you know, being uncomfortable. I know the things to do and say, and I thought, boy, if I can help people know how to do that, they can step into this person's grieving world and be a comfort to them because boy, do we need it at these times. So that was where the inspiration for the ministry. What a great and necessary topic to be discussed and to be out there because you're right. A lot of people don't know what to do. It seems like common sense, right, Lynn? But it's not for most of us. Well, you would think, I know. And and yet it can be very simple because one of the things I tell people is that we aren't looking for you to fix this. Um, we know that this is going to be painful. We just need you to, to listen to us and help us process this and not judge how we're doing it. Um, and just acknowledge that we're going through this loss. Um, it really can be much more simple than we make it. Yeah, absolutely. And that relates very much to the topic of title of your book, Cultivating Compassion. So why did you decide to write the book, Cultivating Compassion? It was another one of those things that I wasn't planning on. <laughs> There seems right. to be a theme here. Well, I was focusing more on getting places to speak on the topic. And so one of the things that I learned is that the best thing to do on your website is to have a demo video. And I had not been videotaped at some of the other places I'd spoken. So I kind of threw my own party at my church, invited people, had my sound guys there, the video people, the PowerPoint. And so they videotaped my whole presentation. And then I sat down with some friends and pick the, the locations in that video that I wanted to use for my demo. So at this point, the demo is at the in the hands of the, the sound people. And I'm sitting at home thinking, because at this point, I have actually quit my job and the ministry is my main job. And I'm thinking, okay, I don't really have anything to do right now. Maybe I should start writing a book. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, great idea. Yeah, so it's it's a pretty short handbook kind of, of book where people can sit down and read it over a lunch hour. And it's very much, what do you do and say and what don't you do and say? Because I wanted people to be able to quickly figure out how to help this friend of theirs that might be going through a loss. And um, my next question has to do with the word compassion. So what is your definition of compassion and how is compassion different from love? I think compassion is very much love in action. I think kindness is another good word for compassion. One of the ways that we show compassion in this situation is by taking ourselves out of the driver's seat, so to speak. Because if we go into these conversations thinking, oh my gosh, I don't know what to say. I'm afraid I'm going to cry or I'm afraid I'm going to make them cry. We are so concerned about ourselves that we're not thinking about the other person. So if we can put ourselves out of that picture and think about the person that's hurting, put them first and foremost, then I think a lot of that other peripheral junk that we have falls by the wayside. And that's where true compassion can come through. And how do we do that? How do we even begin to yeah. <laughs> remove ourselves from the picture? <laughs> Well, you know, I do, I do get that a lot. And I've heard people say to me, I just don't have a gift of compassion. And I might have even been one of those people that has said that. And um, there's a couple of scripture texts that I use when I talk to people. And one of them talks about, uh, this is a little bit lengthy, but it's, it's really powerful. 
It's from 2 Corinthians uh, chapter 1, verses 3 and 4. It says, Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, the Father of mercies and God of all comfort, who comforts us in all our affliction, so that we may be able to comfort those who are in any affliction with the comfort with which we ourselves are comforted by God. So that's one way. We look to see how has God given us comfort in our difficult times. And he's not saying here that you comfort those that are in the same boat as you. He's saying comfort those who are in any any affliction. So our experience with God comforting us kind of informs how we comfort someone else. And secondly, I think people, like I said, they figure someone else has got the gift, but we don't have it. And what I tell them is that if we think that we're going to do everything in our own strength, we are never going to be good at this. And so the other scripture text talks about, this is God talking to the Apostle Paul. He says, my grace is sufficient for you, for my power is made perfect in weakness. Therefore, I, Paul, will boast all the more gladly of my weaknesses so that the power of Christ may rest upon me. So when we let go, this is that control thing again. If we let go of our desire to feel like we're going to have to kind of muster up this compassion, we're never going to make it. So if we allow God to work through us in this whole area of compassion, that's where it's going to work. Wow, I love that. Because this is the only way, really. It comes from us first. We need to be at that place of inner peace and connected with the divine. A question just came to mind about control. I have asked this before. Uh, Do you connect control to fear? Well, I think that's probably a really good underlying emotion for sure, um, because we're we're controlling things because we want to know what the outcome is rather than just taking it as it comes to us. So I would say, yeah, there's probably a certain element of that. And I think sometimes it, it does matter what our personalities are, and some people have more control issues than others. myself included. Mm -hmm. But I I think probably that's a really good point that at the bottom of that, there is some of that fear. I like what you said. Uh, I think it has a lot to do also with personality types. And some people, they're more practical, more pragmatic than others. They want to plan everything. That's a good thing too. Uh, It is. So let's talk about the main reasons. You might already have spoken about them, the main reasons that stop people from reaching out to those who are suffering. I can, because I think that they're they're pretty common across the board, the things that we think ourselves that keep us from doing that. Um, first of all, we do think we're going to say the wrong thing and it's going to hurt them. And so we think it's better to say nothing at all. But in, in the in the end, that's one of the worst things is to disappear completely. Um, secondly, I think that it's hard to be around someone that's hurting because we don't want them to hurt and and they're going to hurt if they're in grief. And so that's part of why we don't like to do it. But sometimes we think we're going to remind them of their loss. And I'm like, really? You think they're going to remind me that my husband is dead? I don't think so. Uh, we also think someone else is more qualified to step into it. So there's a variety of reasons why we just step back because we think someone else is going to do a better job at it. How interesting. You talk about society too, that society plays a part in the way we we don't reach out. We don't know how to do this to be compassionate. Talk to me about that. Yeah. 
I think it's probably even more prevalent here in the United States. I have a, a neighbor who is from <clears throat> Africa, and she says their society is a little more open and understanding that someone is grieving for a long haul. I think in the United States, we very much have this quick fix-it mentality, and we really don't, like I said, we don't like to be around someone who's hurting. We want it fixed, and the sooner the better. Um, I had a new widow friend shortly after Dale passed away who said to me, Lynn, people want you to get over this quickly so that they can feel better. And there's a lot of truth to that. So this whole, you know, don't worry, be happy mentality. And I'm not saying that we should always be Debbie Downers, but I think that we need to be honest about the fact that when we lose somebody, it is painful and it's sorrow and it's loss and it's tearful and pretending like it didn't happen is just adding to that pain for the person. So society, yes, we want things fixed quickly. Um, Don't worry, be happy. I think we just want to get everybody to their happy place. And eventually we find a way to do that, but we're not ready to do that on someone else's timetable. We need to do that on the unique journey that is our grieving. Oh, wow. And that's my next question about time frame. Is there such a thing? Um, not to the grieving person, to the world around them. (laughs) Oh yeah. Well, you know, there's always that thing that says, well, you know, the first year, once you get through all the very first, you know, first birthdays, first anniversaries, you know, then you're probably better. Um, no, I know when my dad passed away very unexpectedly, the hospice people told my mom probably three to four years to grieve the loss of a spouse. And I remember thinking at the time, oh my goodness, how do you grieve something that long? But I think depending on your loss, I talk about this too, and people are often surprised about it. I talk about forever grief. And having lost both my parents, I grieve them deeply at the time because I love both my parents. And I wasn't prepared, especially my dad who died 28 years ago. I wasn't ready for it. But today I would say that for the most part, my memories of them are are all happy ones. I don't cry generally when I think about the death of my parents. But my husband is a completely different thing. I mean, I'm two and a half years past his death and I can still, at the drop of a hat, cry and have a breakdown on something. So I look at that and say, I am forever changed by the loss of my husband. And again, I'm not going to spend my life in a puddle of tears, but I am a different person because of this loss. And that is going to affect me forever. You're so strong, though. I can hear in your voice. Um, yeah, you have a very strong energy. I, uh, I'm I'm pretty called to the to this mission, <laughs> and, and I do feel yeah. very strongly about it because I've lived it, and and I can speak from my experience and not just any book learning or what somebody else has told me. This is my journey, and God has said I'm going to use your journey to help you relate to other people and help other people work through these things. So yeah, I I am passionate about it for sure. Yeah. How wonderful. Thank you. I, um, I thank you for that being stronger for all of us, (laughs) for most of us. Um, you talk about forever grief and then you just mentioned forever changed, which is really great uh, to hear. Um, especially when we are forever changed in a positive way. In what ways are you forever changed? Oh, there's a lot of ways, and they're not all bad. They're certainly not all bad, but there is that. I mean, there is that that presence that's always gone from your life. 
you know, we were, we dated for five years, mostly because I needed my dad to get used to the idea. (laughs) And then we're married for 30. So it was a 35 year relationship. So one of the big changes is that I don't have him in my life anymore. And he was uh, the biggest piece of my life for most of my adult years. So that's a huge change that's hard. Um, The loneliness of not having that is hard. Um, So all the things that you would probably think about being a widow are true. You know, all the, the difficulties, you know, not knowing how to step back into life, how to be a single person in a couple's world, all those things are hard. But I can tell you that since Dale's death, I have more clearly seen God leading me different directions in this season that I ever saw before Dale died. I have learned who I put my faith in, who I trust in, who I run to when I'm grieving. And so I feel like it has strengthened me in so many ways that I wouldn't have had the opportunity to be strengthened by if I had not had this major loss in my life. So let me ask you the question that I asked you before recording. Can we prepare for losing people we love somehow? For me, the answer is no. And as I've said, Dale was 20 years older than me, so not a surprise. Um, He had dementia for the last nine years. In the last 10 months, he was at a care facility and clearly declining mentally and physically. And uh, I'm grateful for those last 10 months because before that, I had years of being the only full-time caregiver for him. And it's excruciating. And that is life-changing in and of itself where you are the only one taking care of someone. So the 10 months he was at the care facility were really a gift where we could reconnect as husband and wife and reminisce and so forth. So during those times of conversation, I did say to him, I'm preparing to lose you sometime in the next year. And he kind of chuckled at me and goes, really? I said, yep, not sure how to do it, but I'm trying. And so my mental state was that, yes, I'm trying to prepare. Um, I felt like I had lost a lot of who he was through the nine years of dementia. And so I really thought and hoped that I was not going to have major grief when he died. And the day that he died was unexpected. I talked to him three times that morning. I said, I'll see you this afternoon. And before the morning was over, I got the call that he was gone. So I was not prepared for that day at all. And I was uh, shocked, I would say, by the depth of my grief when I thought that I was done with it. So when you lose someone a little bit at a time, whether it's through dementia or Alzheimer's or a long illness, it's almost like you grieve twice because you grieve what you lose of them while they're still alive. But when they die, then you do the main grieving that they're really gone now. So for me, I was not able to prepare for it. So that answer for me is a a resounding no. Right. Um, So I guess my next question is about the faith that you speak of, the connection with God Um, Do you think that that might help if we have this kind of intimate relationship with God? Um, It definitely, it helps you. He walks through it with you. I can't say that the pain isn't there because I've told people in the past, I don't feel God's comfort through some of this because that's that's because I'm defining comfort as not feeling any sadness. 
And yet what I saw for God's comfort was scripture texts that he brought to me or people that blessed me in a zillion different ways. That's how God comforted me. And I think the other thing that has been important for me is that I have been a believer since I was 14. And so my theology about God has been solid for a long time. And I think that's important to have in place before the really hard times hit you, because then you can say, okay, I hate this, but I trust you, God, through it. Trust. Yeah, I love that word. Talk to me about uh, joy and sorrow. You mentioned briefly earlier, and then how can they coexist? Is that possible? It is possible because that's how I've been living for two and a half years. And so the, the sorrow, I mean, we can go all the way back to the Garden of Eden when Adam and Eve disobeyed God and sin entered the world. And so that's when we see death and loss and heartache come into the world. And so that's what we have to acknowledge that this is part of the fallen world we live in. And so we can't pretend like we don't hurt when things like this happen in our lives. It's part of this world. But the joy comes from a lot of different sources. Um, I said earlier, my joy, part of my joy, a big part of my joy comes from knowing I'll see my husband again and where I will spend eternity. But there are a lot of daily joys with the friends that bless me, with the the things that I learned through this season. Um, Every day, if you look for it, there's a blessing and you have to see that that's a joy in your life and not let the sorrow diminish your joy. Even though the joy doesn't get rid of your pain, you can't let that sorrow diminish your joy either. You have to consciously in- experience both of them. Mm, yeah, I like that. Then not pushing away anything and choosing to still be grateful. It sounds to me like gratitude may be connected to joy, a state of joy. Absolutely. Yeah. Yeah. I think that's a good attitude in general, regardless of whether you're going through a loss or not, is to look for the things you're grateful for, because they are absolutely there, regardless of what your life is. Right. So true. So let's talk about what to do, what to say, and what not when trying to help a friend. Oh, yes. Um, These are a lot of things that I learned the hard way because as I'm hearing these things on this side of things, I'm thinking to myself, oh my gosh, that's exactly what I've been doing. (laughs) So I'm going to start with uh, the thing that is most surprising to me and to most of the people that I talk about. And I would say almost all of us have, have done it. It's when somebody is going through a hard time, we say to them, if you need anything, let me know. And of course, we have the best intentions when we say that. And I have done it a lot. I still catch myself doing it. But the reality for me was that almost every conversation I had after Dale died, this is how it ended. If you need anything, let me know. If you want to go to coffee, let me know. If you need to go to a movie, let me know. And honestly, it was overwhelming. I had zero strength to do the reaching out. It was pretty much all I could do to get out of bed in the morning. And it's a good thing I had a couple dogs to get me up. But we do not have that strength. So what I appreciated instead were the friends that said, I'd like to set a date to bring dinner over to your house. And the, I mean, there's a good sec, good example and a not so good example. The not so good is expecting the grieving person to do all the work. 
And the good example is step in and be the one that's that's bringing the meal and being compassionate. So that's one of the biggest ones. Um, I think the other one that we try to do when somebody's hurting, we'll say, well, at least. Well, at least you got to say your goodbyes. Well, at least they didn't suffer. Well, at least all these different things. And, and they may be true. Yeah, they're probably true. But what we're feeling at that moment is I don't want you to try to minimize my pain. I want you to acknowledge my pain and not try to make me feel like I shouldn't be grieving as much as I am. So I think instead you say things like, I can't imagine how hard this is for you and my heart hurts for you and I'm here for the long haul for you. Those are the kinds of things that are more important to say. Wow, I like them a lot. I mean, that's true. It happens all the time. I think I did it. All the time. Oh, yeah. Me too. <laughs> I guess that I'm still trying not to do it, even as a grieving person. <laughs> mm, wow. So I think the question I have for you now, it's about uh, the process, the time frame. As you mentioned before, everyone has their own time. Their own, they need their space to heal. When uh, do we know that we are just getting into the sorrow a bit too much and getting depressed and self-destructive? Yeah, that is a really good question and a really hard thing to answer because if you are the person in the pain, you want to, you don't want to be in it, but you also, if you're going to be honest about it, you know you have to walk through it. And you also know it's probably a lot longer than most people think it should be. Um, I had a lot of people early on that said, maybe you should take some medication. And in fact, I even did a blog post called um, Grieving, Depression, and dot, dot, dot medication. And I was trying to draw the difference between people that are clinically depressed and in need of medication that is, can be very helpful for them and somebody that is grieving a deep loss in their life. Because there is a difference there. And I don't think it's fair to either side to put them in the same basket. So for me, I would say, you know, it. I'm getting out. I am exercising. I'm eating mostly healthy, except for the chocolate. Um, <laughs> um, <laughs> is that dark? <laughs> no, 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 of course not. Because the dark is healthier. Mine's going to be no chocolate. <laughs> oh, no. <laughs> um, and so I was doing the things that I needed to try to get back into some sense of living, but I was still deeply grieving my loss. And I thought that's what grieving is. Now, I guess if you cannot for days on end get out of bed and do anything that looks like life to somebody, that to me would be a good reason to say, I need to get some help. And I will have to say, I have not been through a dark depression. And so I can't speak intelligently about it uh, like others that I know that have talked to me about it. But that would be my sense that if you're the person in it, if you just aren't able to get out of bed for more than a few days, maybe it's time. Now, on the flip side of that, if you're the person looking in, you're not going to be able to see everything as well. But I think you have to be a little more cautious because I have people all the time say, what can I do to get my friend or my dad or my cousin out of this pit they're in? I said, probably not very much. That's what you can do because you don't know how their grief journey is going. 
And if you try to drag them out of that, they're probably going to just resist you and it's going to get worse in your relationship. So again, if you see that they could become suicidal, if they may be harming themselves, I think you try to get the help of a professional. But knowing exactly when that is, is not crystal clear. Yeah, no, I can I can see that. And I also hear something interesting that grief doesn't take away self-love. I, I think that's one of the reasons that um, I'm working on a book right now that's going to speak more to the grieving person as opposed to the, the support system. And I think one of the things that is helpful for those of us that are going through grief, and it's why you see a lot of grief support groups, is to understand that what you're going through is not unusual. This is what it is. This is what walking alongside, this is what walking in grief is like. And so that way you go, okay, I'm not crazy. It's not just me. Because if you're isolated and you think there's something wrong with you because you're still grieving, that's where you start to have your doubts. And so there's a lot of advantages to knowing that your journey, even though it's very unique, that there are similar uh, experiences and length of time that you're going to have with others that are going through the same kind of thing. Did you join any um, support group, Lynn? You know, I I did not initially. Um, I feel like my blog writing was my my support because I wrote about what I was feeling. I had people that would comment on it that would say, you know, I've never thought about this or somebody that would say, you know, I, I felt like this when I lost my husband too and I didn't know what to do with it. So I got a lot of back and forth um, reactions when I did my blog posts, which were pretty regular. So that was really where I was with that. I had some friends that would come and just really let me talk about things. Um, I have to give a shout out to one friend, and I always talk about this story. It was soon after Dale passed away, and she had never met Dale, and she had only known me during the years that he had dementia. But she called me up a few days after the service, and she said, Lynn, I just want to set a time to come over and let you tell me about this wonderful man. So that was powerful. And those are the kinds of things that I think we want to do. We want to talk about them. Um, I have since, I'm, I'm kind of the backup leader for a grief support group through our church. So we started that. And then, of course, the pandemic has changed how that all looks. Um, but I have found that because I've got some friends that are great about listening to what I'm going through, that I've been able to process a lot of that. Um, outside of a support group, but with the same general ideas going on. Yeah, that's a great point about talking about. I didn't know that this could help, actually. So how do we know? This is one of the questions. How do we know when uh, the person who is grieving wants to talk? Right. Yeah, I get this question a lot. How do we know this or how do we know that? And my answer for all those kinds of things, including how do we know if they want to talk about it, is to ask them to say, do you know, are you feeling like you'd like to talk about your husband? Have you had enough of that? Do you just need some time alone? What would be the best thing for for us to do right now? Because most of the time we, we do kind of know, yes, I do need to talk about this. Or you know what? I've just had six conversations about it. I need a break from it. So I think we, we tend to not, um, we want to just guess 
a lot on <laughs> what they need. And we, we miss the fact that the best resource for us to know what the person needs is the person themselves. Mm, so asking questions, right? Yeah, yeah, exactly. And then kind of following their lead because there are going to be people that do not want to process this at this point in time. And if you're sensing that, that you do back off, you don't force yourself into their life. But if you can see that they're starting to talk about it, ask questions that lead them to the next thing and, and let them just talk to you. It's a huge gift to someone that's grieving. Yeah, I agree. So uh, my other question is about support. What is your definition of support these days after everything that you've been through? Yeah, because you know, grief does change. Uh, people have asked me a lot if it's better now. And I said, well, uh, my pat answer is I'm not curled up in a fetal position on the bathroom floor anymore, <laughs> but, but I have now been sad for two and a half years. I said, and that has a cumulative effect on a person. So um, grief just morphs. I don't think it necessarily heals. It changes what it looks like. And so clearly the things that people do long-term are probably changing. I don't have people checking in with me every day. I don't expect that. But I can tell you that the things that we say early on to someone, like, I'm so sorry you're going through this, or I can't imagine how hard this is, all of those good things can still be used really literally years down the road. They're still powerful. And as time goes by, there's more, there are more and more anniversaries. And so when people acknowledge you know, his birthday or our wedding anniversary, that's one of the hardest days of the whole year is our wedding anniversary. When they still years later acknowledge that those are hard days, uh, that's a real powerful thing for us as a griever to not feel alone because we know we can't be front and center in everybody's world at this point. But to know that there are some people out there that real still acknowledge that this is a long-term grief and there's still days that are hard for us. Oh, wow, man. It is a good idea to for friends to still be in touch and still ask questions, even though it has been two, three, five, ten years, it doesn't matter, but they still acknowledge the event. And Yeah, I think you hit the key word there, acknowledge. That's a really important thing, acknowledge that they're still going through the pain. That's That's very powerful. Right, right. That's what I didn't say at the end. They acknowledge, yeah, the, the pain's still there. How, hmm. and even though the pain, um, you said grief chains, but the sadness still there. It is. It's just always behind the surface and anything can bring the tears. Um, and we have a pretty good face that we put on when we're out in public because, you know, after a while, you don't want to cry in public <laughs> anymore. You've done that and you're tired of crying in public. And so you you do try to move on. I mean, I talk a lot of times about how it really is like uh, that you've lost a limb. You always know that you've lost that leg, but you figure out how to live life without it. And that's how I look at my life without my husband. I always know he's not here, but I'm still living life without him. Mm, right. and, and even though some people talk about love, that those who love never lose and never die, or those, those who have been loved. Um, and then the other phrase is um, getting over. So all these uh, are just cliches that they are unuseful, right? A lot of times they are. Um, I know a lot of people talk about instead of moving on or getting over, they talk about moving forward. And I don't want to be more cliches with that, but I think that is probably more accurate that we do move forward because we get out of bed, we go back to work, we go back to caring for our families, we go to our ministry 
anniversary, whatever it might be, we move forward with the loss that's still part of our life and a part of who we have become. Yeah, I like that. Moving forward. Yeah. But this is more like a conscious decision from the person who is uh, going through the pain, not something that should be told. <laughs> yes, exactly. Yeah, because that's the other thing people say is, well, you need to such and such. You need to get out more. You need to start dating. You need to eat more. You need to eat less. You know, there's a lot of things. It's like, no, no, don't be my therapist. Just let me be the one that works through this on my own. Most of the time, that's what it should, should happen. Right. Just being there for you, for the person is enough, right? Oh, it's, it's so rare that we just kind of cling to the people that are that for us in our lives. Yeah. So coming to my final questions, before I ask you my final questions, would you like to add anything that my questions didn't cover or read a passage in your book, Lynn? One of the things that I think is uh, an important topic is we, we don't talk about tears a lot. And I just want to touch on that for a minute because that is uh, infinitely a part of grieving. And we are created with tears. And one of the things that just blew my mind is I was, I do a lot of things through Google if I don't know something. And so I had Googled, um, you know, the difference between tears. And this was a scientific article that said that um, they had looked at the the physical, physiological makeup of onion peeling tears and emotional tears. And they were different because there were actually toxins in the emotional tears because they're being cleansed from our body as we cried. And so as women, I think we especially know what that feels like to have a good cry, that we usually feel better afterwards. And that's why we've been created to heal through our tears. So I think that's another societal thing that we don't want the tears and we think somebody shouldn't because how often do we say as soon as we tear up, we say, oh, I'm sorry. No, we shouldn't be sorry for the tears. It's how we heal. And uh, it's helpful for us if somebody doesn't back off if we start to cry. Don't feel like you caused them. Feel like you're helping them heal by just joining in them, in with them with their tears. So that's a point that I think that um, we need to have out there as well. That's true. That's very similar to going through the pain, emotional pain, although they are not showing. And we know that, and then we just don't know what to do. And the tears you're saying is the same thing. A lot of people don't know what to do. Yeah, it's like, oh my gosh, I started it. I better back off. <laughs> <laughs> That's kind of funny, but yeah. I know. <laughs> One of the things that I, I have cried a lot in my life, and I noticed that crying is great, but not for too long. <laughs> if the side effects of, of crying, the good and the bad side of it. Would you like to add anything else, uh, Lynn, that I left out? Uh, one more point, and then I'll let you get to your last question. I think for those that have not done what they feel like they should have done with a grieving friend, I don't, I don't think it's ever too late to step back in. If you apologize, say, I'm so sorry, I haven't been there for you. I want to change things. I want to be a support for you now. I think that you can do that for a long time after the, the loss, because that has happened with me and I was grateful to have them back in my life. So don't feel like if you miss the visitation, the funeral or the card that you're out of the picture. I think it's always important to step back in if you can. Yeah, I like that. Really wonderful. Thank you. So let me ask you my final question is, what was the hardest lesson to learn about yourself? 
I think it's back to that control thing because um, when you have lost a husband or anything, anybody close to you, it doesn't even have to be a, a death. It could be a job or things that you thought were solid in your life. I have had to learn that I can't hang on to that. I've also had to learn that it isn't necessarily the best place to run first to my friends, that I've learned that I need to go to God first with the things that I need and with my prayer requests. Uh, and just, again, we get back to that that topic of trust, to know that my life is in His hands and to trust that He wants good for me, even through these difficult things. And uh, this is the season that He's going to make that crystal clear to me, <laughs> because for most of my life, I have been a very in-charge kind of person. I had um, a successful successful career, and a lot of things that people say, oh, she's really strong. But I have learned through this that, boy, I don't have the strength I need to get through this. And so my strength comes from God. Speaking of success, um, how do you define success these days? Well, these days, it's completely different. (laughs) It has nothing to do with the corporate world anymore, I can tell you that. Um, Success really is, uh, am I following, and am I going through the doors that God is opening in this ministry so that I'm, I'm doing His will because I'm clear in my mind that this is what He has for me during this season of my life. I don't know how long it will be, but for now, success for me is making sure that this message gets to as many people as possible and that I, my eyes and my heart are open to where God is leading me through this. Mm-hmm. Do you believe in unconditional self-love? Oh, I don't think any of us get that completely right here. I think the only one that really gets it right is um, God and maybe my dogs. (laughs) (laughs) Um, I think it's a good goal. I think it's a good trajectory to have is to... forgive yourself. We know God is forgiving. So, I mean, I talked to that I don't have a ton of regrets now that Dale is God, and it's not because there weren't things that I did or said that I wish I hadn't done, but I know He's forgiven me. I know God has forgiven me. And so I don't beat myself up over that. And I think that's a direction we have to shoot for. I don't do it perfectly either, but I think that's the path we need to head down. Yes. What is another word for healing? Oh, peace is the first thing that comes to mind. To have peace with where you're at, it doesn't mean that there isn't going to be some kind of pain, but to maybe have come to terms with what that looks like and why you have it. To say that, okay, I'm not healed. I'll probably never be completely healed from this loss, but I've come to terms with the fact that this is what it is in my life now, and I can be peaceful about it. So I think maybe that's the best that we can do with that. If you knew you would die soon, meaning losing the body, what would you change about your life? What would you do differently? I would keep doing what I'm doing for sure, but I think what I would try to do is be more intentional about the gospel message. I mean, you said, what does the world need now? And I'm saying, it needs Jesus. That would be my my focus, but I would like to think that I would do it with the life within the life that I'm still leading right now, with the friends and family that I have, with the people that I meet through this ministry. But I think I would like my focus to be more crystal clear about that. Yeah. What are three things about life you know for sure, Lynn, as of today? I know I'm a child of God, that I'll spend eternity in heaven with Him. 
That is the main thing. I know that he walks with me through this and that because he does, that whatever I'm going through, he uses for my good. I know that I'm kind of making two parts out of each of these, aren't I? But, <laughs> but <laughs> <Okay>. <laughs> I, I, I also know that um, the strength that I have now at this season is from him and I'm grateful for it. And I'm, I'm looking forward to what's ahead. Even though I'm ready to go, I've told my doctor, you know, if I get a terminal disease, I'm not going to fight it that hard, but I, I'm not suicidal. I just am ready if God chooses to take me. Um, so I think my focus has changed and I know, and those all kind of are related, but I think that's, those are the things I know that are true from this point on in my life. Oh, wonderful. Thank you so much for your presence, for your courage, for your beauty and your peace and your joy. <laughs> I can hear the joy. Yes, thank too. you. <laughs> There has to be that. Thank you so much for the opportunity to speak with you. I really appreciate that. Thank you, Lynn. Where can we find more information about you, your books, products, services and future projects? Uh, my website is the best place to find that. And of course, with a name that isn't easy to spell, but I'm going to give it to you anyway. So lynnhooksima.com is my website. You can get to my book. You can get to my blog. You can get to my presentations. Everything is there. And it's lynn, L-Y-N-N-E, and the hooksima's H-O-E-K. S-E-M-A.com. Or if you're looking for the book, you can go to Amazon and just put in Cultivating Compassion, and it's a green cover. So that's another way to get to the book. Wonderful. Thank you so much again, and we'll talk soon. Thank you very much. I appreciate it. Bye for now. Bye-bye. Bye. Thank you for listening. To learn more about Lynn Hooksima, please visit her website, lynnhooksima.com. To learn more about this podcast, please visit fitforjoy.org slash podcast. I want to thank the Patreon members, Lawrence McGrath, Mark Basden, Terry Clayton, and Aidan Vickrock. Thank you again for listening, and bye for now. <laughs>